The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. The task that I have been set this evening, uh, I thought was a more challenging one than uh, last year. The power of tourism and the oneist lie, Christian witness in the midst of a pagan utopia, in seeking to address both uh, Christians as we seek to understand how to share the gospel, but also some of you who may be here who aren't Christians and are interested, you're skeptical maybe, you're seeking, you're interested in the Christian answer to the questions of life. And I hope to be speaking to both groups this evening. To do that, I want to begin by reading a few verses from John's gospel, from the prologue of John's gospel, John chapter 1 and verses 1 through 14, which I think sets this up for us very well. And as I've been listening to the other speakers already this week, I think they've really helped me as uh, I move, move towards this address this evening. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth." The story is uh, told of a little boy who was uh, helping his mother one evening uh, cleaning the house, and she asked him to go and fetch uh, the broom from the shed. I'm presuming that we use the same terms here for broom. That translates, right? The broom, the brush to sweep the floor. And the shed is that thing that's in the garden, that wooden kind of hut, sometimes plastic these days. And mum said to him, son, go and fetch me the broom from the shed to sweep the hall. But it was evening time, and he said, mum, I don't want to go out there. It's dark, and you know I'm scared of the dark. So his mum says to him, look, there's nothing to fear. God is everywhere. He will go with you as you go. Just go get me the broom. Well, he's not very convinced by this argument. So he says, mum, are you sure God is really out there? And she says, son, God is everywhere. He's everywhere. 
Off you go and sing along the way. Well, the boy is still concerned, so he opens the door just a little bit. He opens it ajar, and he peers out, and he says, God, if you're out there, can you fetch me the broom from the shed? (laughs) Now, it would be wonderful if our ultimate questions about life and reality were answered quite so simply, but they're not. The challenges that we face can't be solved as easily as that. In Western culture, in fact, where religion has now been politicized, it is increasingly difficult for people to make their way through the fog of the religious worldviews and ideologies on offer. Many people pride themselves today in declaring they are non-religious, even though they attribute creation to nature. And then there are those who profess faith in Christ today who are often lambasted as members of Well, in Canada, a mentally ill religious right, if you identify the name of Christ. It's not easy, then, to sort through or actually understand what we are talking about when we speak about the faith, the Christian faith, and religion. And this leads to a social reality that I think it's important to always begin with when sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, that most people's understanding of Christianity is a misunderstanding. Most people's understanding of Christianity is a misunderstanding. And this is why it's important, I think, first of all tonight to grapple with two things. First, the nature of religion. And secondly, to show that everybody, without exception, whoever you are tonight, is already religious. The challenge is discerning the truth amidst the array of claimants to religious truth in our culture. You may already be be skeptical, thinking, well, I'm not religious, and I want to show you that you are. James C. Livingston has written, and I quote, a human being is rightly called homo religiosus, a religious animal. A religious animal, not a political animal, a religious animal. Now, the term religion is difficult to define, notoriously difficult to define. The word probably originates with with an agricultural idea, Uh, to tie back, to get things growing in the same direction. But when you ask people to define religion, it's difficult. The influential uh, definitions have varied a great deal. Sir Alfred North Whitehead suggested this. He says, religion is what an individual does with his solitariness. I quite like that. Paul Tillich, not a person whose theology I would direct you to ordinarily, suggests... Religion is the state of being grasped by an ultimate concern, a concern which qualifies all other concerns as preliminary and which itself contains the answer to the question of the meaning of our life. An ultimate concern that pertains to the meaning of life. Now, the diversity of those definitions reveals straight away that we can't confine the idea of religion to those who happen to subscribe to one of the four or five major world religions, which is how people like to think about it. Rather, life itself and its many facets has a religious character. The sociologist Milton Yinger noticed that we all have sets of beliefs and values to which we are implicitly or explicitly loyal. Whoever you are tonight, you have a set of values and beliefs to which you are loyal and which, if prodded in the right area, you will react defensively to those things that you value being challenged. 
We each then have a center of value for our lives that has a religious character. And Tillich pushes this insight a little bit further. He says, man is ultimately concerned about his being and meaning. Man is unconditionally concerned about that which conditions his being beyond all the conditions in him and around him. In other words, what is it that ultimately conditions our lives? Put the question a different way, what is it that we view as unconditioned reality upon which everything else depends and is conditioned by? What is unconditioned reality? What is it that's not conditioned by other things? You're conditioned by all kinds of things. You live in a very limited environment, in a limited part of the world for a limited period of time, in a limited human body, conditioned by who your parents were. Your height, your nationality, your language, your gifts, your proclivities, and so forth. You're a totally conditioned creature. You're aware of that. So am I. Religion, then, is ultimately about what we believe is unconditioned reality that conditions everything else. That is, our concept of the divine is that which is unconditioned. It's not defined even by public acts of worship then. So people say today, don't they, well, you know, I'm not really religious. By that they mean they don't go to church or visit the temple or attend the mosque. But the vast majority of religion historically has not been directed towards a personal deity in any case. Aristotle, for example, argued for belief in the existence of a supreme being, a prime mover who is remote and uninterested in human affairs. So he thought the idea of worship of such a being was, was ridiculous, a futile idea. Certain forms of Hinduism, certain forms of Buddhism involve no worship. So if you are not a worshiper in the traditional sense, it doesn't mean you're neutral. It doesn't mean you're quietly sitting back to inspect from a neutral perspective, these other religious perspectives. And it's remarkable that many people fail to see that religion doesn't necessarily even involve a body of ethical teaching, which is another popular conception of our culture. The philosopher Roy Clauser has pointed out, and I quote, and just try and track with the slightly convoluted language, I think it was Voltaire who said philosophers are, are uh, he said in his definition of philosophy, he said, when He who listens does not know what he who speaks means, and when he who speaks does not know what he himself means, that's philosophy. (laughs) But this is what Clauser says. He says, in Hinduism, the divine, Brahman, Atman, is not considered a being at all. It is instead an indefinite beingness or being itself. For this same reason, Brahman Atman cannot be strictly called a god if a god is taken to be an individual and personal. Buddhism also denies the divine as a being but goes even further. For fear that being itself is still too definite an expression, it insists on such terms as void, non-being, and nothingness for the divine. So although these religions believe there is a divine reality, they do not believe the divine is a being at all, let alone a supreme one. And of course, with, as Peter often says, uh, that we're becoming Hindus, this is a very common conviction today in our culture. That whatever God there is, is not the personal God of Scripture. So the many gods that are expressed within Hinduism 
and other uh, faith perspectives are actually secondary derivative manifestations. They are not ultimate reality. And this is seen in the ancient pagan traditions. The ancient Greek poems, for example, of Hesiod and Homer have the gods and all creation evolving out of some primeval, primordial, watery stuff. So the gods aren't God in the way that you and I speak of God. In Hesiod, the undifferentiated natural world is simply what is. Its existence is unconditional. I was doing a debate on the existence of God not so long ago. I've done a number of those. don't want to, to bring down the ire of um, one of our contributors on me for debating God's existence, but I'll explain that shortly, how I do that. But when I was discussing... Uh, uh, at the beginning of this debate with one philosopher, he thought it would be very amusing and very compelling rhetorically to say that, he says, I don't believe in Zeus, and I don't believe in Thor, and I don't believe in fairies at the bottom of the garden. I'm an atheist with respect to those gods, and I'm an atheist with respect to your god as well. Not grasping the fact that twoism means that this god that I'm talking about isn't a god stationed within the world who's emerged from the watery stuff out of the chaos. This is a God who stands outside of creation, who called it all into existence. Both of the accounts of the the Greek, uh, uh, Hesiod and Homer, they reveal that the gods are derivative beings and they're aspects of a more basic ultimate reality. And this same dependence is found in Babylon and ancient Egypt and these chaos cults where the gods simply emerge out of something else that's prior. Werner Jaeger, commenting on this poem, he says, if we compare, just track with me now, it's going to get easier. If we compare this Greek hypostasis of the world creative eros with that of the logos in the Hebrew account of creation, we may observe a deeply lying difference in the outlook of the two peoples. The Logos is a substantialization of an intellectual property or power of God, the Creator, who is stationed outside the world and brings that world into existence by his own personal fiat. The Greek gods are stationed inside the world. They are descended from heaven and earth. They are generated by the mighty power of Eros, who likewise belongs within the worlds as an all-engendering primitive force. Thus, they are already subject to what we would call natural law. When Hesiod's thought at last gives way to truly philosophical thinking, the divine is sought inside the world, not outside it, as in the Jewish-Christian theology that develops out of the book of Genesis and the, the Gospel of John. Now, this is very, very important. Whatever gods or goddesses may or may not be posited in any system of thought, the religious kernel of every worldview is found in this concept of what we might call, I'm borrowing this from Roy Clauser, the divine per se. That which is unconditioned reality. Whatever is non-dependently real. You would at least acknowledge you're dependent. I mean, you didn't choose to be born. And you're not causing your heart to beat right now. You could have a heart attack and die during this lecture, God forbid. You're a creature. 
All these worldviews then have in common the belief in the divine per se, which is characterized by non-dependence. That is, whatever is self-explanatory or independent in your worldview or my worldview is our conception of God. Interestingly enough, even the pre-Socratic thinkers saw the divine as that which depends on nothing for its existence. Let me give you one example. The Pythagoreans conceived of numbers as ultimate reality. Now, don't try and get your head around this. This is just an illustration. They conceived of numbers as ultimate reality. All things are made of numbers and their relations. So they wrote prayers and hymns to numbers. I'll give you one. This is a prayer to the number 10. Bless us, O divine number, thou who generatest gods and men, thou that containest the root and source of eternally flowing creation, For divine number begins with the profound, the pure unity, until it comes to the holy four. Then it begets the mother of all, the all-encompassing, the all-abounding, the firstborn, the never-swerving, the never-tiring, holy ten, the keyholder of all. That's religious devotion to numbers as ultimate reality. Now notice the oneism here. The paganism, the pure unity that is behind everything. Numbers are this changeless root and source of everything that changes. So one plus one to a Pythagorean equaling two was a religious statement. The real difference then between what the Apostle John describes in chapter one of this gospel and all these others is that the Judeo-Christian explanation is personal And the pagan explanation, impersonal. Personalism is twoist. You're going to see why. Impersonalism is oneist. One is located and grounded in the void, the abstract, the one, and everything emanates from that. The other in a personal, moral, transcendent being. So if you're going to understand the claim of Christianity in the contemporary world context... We have to start with a recognition that all of human thought is religious in nature. All of it. All the thinking you do about the world, about numbers, about education, about your children's future, about culture, about politics, about law, about unconditioned reality, it's all religious. The Bible sees religion not merely as the worship of the supreme God, but the replacement of the true God with a substitute, non-dependent reality. That's called false religion in the Bible. Clearly, then, no one on this basis can escape religious pre-commitments. All of you are caught up with religious pre-commitments because whatever has unconditionally non-dependent status in your worldview is your God. You may not write hymns to your God or say prayers to your God, but that is your God. So the question becomes, do people need a map to reality or do they just need to meditate? It depends on your worldview. Maps or meditation? That's my next point. Nearly, uh, I don't know, 25 years ago now, in my late teen years, I was doing a lot of long-distance running. I 
turn 40, unfortunately, next month. And uh, my midlife crisis is parked in my garage. It's a Pontiac Trans Am 91 T-Bar GTA, Gran Turismo Americano. Peter's had a ride in it. Big wheel spin, and we swung out. I almost killed him in it. But back in my teens, I used to do a lot of uh, distance running and a bit into my early 20s as well. So at one point, I was running up to 50 miles a week. And uh, one day, I was out running in the Wiltshire countryside, which is where I grew up in the southwest of England. And in southern England, it's all lanes and what we, lanes and what we call hedgerows. It's windy, twisty lanes with hedges on either side. And really, sometimes you can't see exactly where you're going. You're just running along various lanes. And there's fields on either side of you. And I lost concentration. I must have done. And I basically got lost. And being the intelligent individual that I am, I thought I ought to ask for some directions. Now, I know most men wouldn't do that, but I was thinking clearly on this particular day. <laughs> and I thought, I'm gonna, I need to stop and ask somebody, where am I? So I saw this elderly couple gardening in front of their little cottage, and I asked them for some directions. And they asked me two questions. They said, where have you come from and where are you going? That's logical. And I explained. And so they were able to give me very simple instructions as I was able to find my way home. I'd basically taken one wrong turn, not concentrating. It's badly signposted in England, in oft oftentimes in the countryside. And I ran three miles out of my way. So it was a good job I was a distance runner because that was about six miles extra that day. It's a long way to run back. Now, the religious confusion of our time reveals that people are existentially lost. I was just geographically muddled. Okay, but I could ask for directions, and somebody with a map or who knew the area could point me the way home. But we live in a context of moral, spiritual, and metaphysical confusion, and it would seem by analogy there are two critical questions that we each have to ask. Where have I come from and where am I going? The difficulty in asking these questions in an ultimate sense today, which are foundational worldview questions, is that our culture being increasingly enamored with pagan assumptions about reality is we have a problem. How do you give directions to a person who doesn't believe it's possible to be lost, even when they are? How do you give directions to a person who doesn't believe it's possible to be lost? What do I mean by that? Well, we face the great questions of life. And as we address them, do we pass people a map that is revelation from God? Or do we tell them to meditate on non-being and realize the divine within? I mean, that's the question. Now, let me illustrate that for you. With humanism and all paganism... The point of reference for truth and reality is not the transcendent God revealed in John chapter 1. Not the God of the Bible, a twoist world. Rather, man replaces God as the ultimate criterion and referent for the truth. God is no longer in the picture. Man is made the measure of all things and is an expression of the divine per se. Now, in a universe where 
There's no transcendent God where you are the point of reference for truth and meaning. That is where all truth is self-referencing. You're the source of definition. It's obviously not possible to get lost. Let me illustrate that for you. Imagine that you are on a raft. You're on a raft. Does that translate? A raft, yeah, like a, like a makeshift vessel. Okay? Being, a, being from a mariner's nation, you know, I'm not sure whether you, all you Americans know, what a, you know about the sea, but the sea, a raft, we English people have to know about the sea because we're surrounded. I was once asked by an American, does England have any beaches? <laughs> yeah. We have quite a lot. We're an island, a small island. In the, anyway, imagine that you are out, you find yourself on a raft at dusk in the middle of the ocean. And you look around you, and all you can see in any given direction is the rising and the falling waves. That's it. That'd be scary, wouldn't it? You wake up on a raft in the middle of the ocean, and all you can see in every direction is the rising and falling waves. You have no idea where you are, but then you look up into the evening sky, and what are you going to see on a clear night? The stars. A transcendent point of reference by which you might be able to navigate your vessel to safety like the ancient mariners did. But you decide, this is my analogy, to ignore the external referent in the heavens and you make yourself the point of reference for navigating the vessel. Now the problem is obvious. Since you are the point of reference and you move with the vessel, there's no way to measure your direction your distance, your speed, or time, because you are everywhere and nowhere in relation to yourself. Are you following me? You are everywhere and nowhere in relation to yourself, because you, being the point of reference, move wherever the vessel does. You are not mapping your world relative to the stars, but only to yourself. If you sail out of a harbor and the harbor moves with you, have you left? This is the problem. Now, the story of human philosophy, of all human philosophy, outside revelation from God, is imagine that you had a number of buoys on this raft. Buoy? Yeah? Okay, good. So, you, human philosophers, they say, okay, well, here's a good spot as many, let's kick one off here. And then they sail on a bit further and say, well, let's kick another one off here. And then off they go a little bit further. In this undifferentiated sea all around, let's kick another one off here. And they start to map reality, but their mapping of reality is just their illusion. There's nothing transcendent about it. And this is the essence of what we can call the epistemological problem of oneism. That is, the problem of knowledge without God. Where all is one, and all is an expression of the divine. In this situation, predication, that is defining anything, identifying anything, knowledge of any kind is impossible by definition. Hence, for the modern pagan, you do not need to seek and find God. You must realize yourself and your divinity. And this is the essence of the first temptation in Genesis. You will be as God. You can define reality for yourself. You can map truth and meaning for yourself. 
relative to yourself. All truth is relative, by the way. Ne- never let anybody tell you that all truth isn't relative. <gasps> what, can you say that in the apologetics conference? All truth is relative to God. If it's relative to me, then we have relativism. Because I might map reality one way, you choose to map it in another. Who's right? Whose map is correct? There's no way of ever telling. There's no way of ever deciding. That's why I tell philosophers who turn up to debates on the existence of God, you lost by showing up. Because by showing up, they're presupposing that there is truth that transcends their mind and my mind and can make sense to the people that are listening. And that they can judge between two claims to truth on the basis of a real world. The loneliness and isolation of oneism, you see, is that man is made both the beginning and the end, the root and the destination. What a miserable existence. Do you want that burden? Clearly defining anything and speaking of truth beyond yourself in such a view is like trying to jump on your own shadow. You ever tried to jump on your own shadow? You used to be able to annoy your siblings by jumping on theirs, right? Get off my shadow. <laughs> but you can't jump on your own shadow because your shadow is just a reflection of yourself. And when you jump, your reflection moves at the same time. Since you are identical with the object you try and jump on, you can never land on your shadow. You can never land on the truth with regard to reality as something outside and beyond yourself in a oneist view of reality. You can never know the truth in such a perspective, but you can never be lost because there is no God to know and there is nothing outside of yourself, really. There is nothing truly other. Anything you think and know is just a reflection of yourself. Are you still with me? Now, Scripture in the Christian gospel tells us something very different that actually makes sense of the world. Because we do know things. We do have knowledge. We do assume truth. It tells us that we are not left in a self-referential absurdity in trying to understand ourselves and our world. It tells us that we're not God and we are lost, but that God sent Jesus Christ to seek and save the lost, to seek and to save the lost. And the message of John's prologue we have read is so dramatic, it's so astonishing that it's not easy to take in its full scope, especially if we're familiar with John's gospel. Leslie Newbegin says, how do you begin to explain that which must in the end be accepted as the beginning of all explanations? So explaining John's prologue is actually difficult because John's prologue is the beginning of all explanations. How do you explain the beginning, that which is the beginning of all explanations? The reason we Christians then preach Christ and begin with God, to the frustration of many, and begin with his revelation is because if the word, as John claims, is the foundation of all being and truth and knowledge and meaning and value, it's absurd to start our reasoning and thinking anywhere else. We either begin with this reality of a creator and a creature, Or our predicament is hopeless. 
In Him was life, John tells us. And in Him is light. He was the life and the light of men. The star by which everything else is illuminated. You don't need lights switched on to see the sun. The sun provides all other light. It's by that that we see everything else. You see, God for us is not at the end of a neutral argument from bare facts. There are no bare facts. If this word is the creator, the one through whom all things were created... There are no neutral bare facts. Neuter means neither one thing nor another. They are all created and governed by God. All things were made through him. So if we don't begin our thinking with the word of God, we cannot conclude with God. You see, what you begin with in your thinking as your ultimate referent for truth is your entire system. If you begin with yourself, you end with yourself. If you begin with the self as your referent, You can only end there. You begin with the word. And God and his meaning and truth in terms of all reality becomes our understanding of the world. And this is the explanatory power of God's word that exposes the folly of other conceptions that are in rebellion against God, ethically, and because ethically, philosophically. Don't think that when you read the philosophers and the scientists that you're reading those who have no ethical and moral perspective on the world or about God. At least Nietzsche was honest enough to admit that men's philosophies are merely autobiographies of their moral preferences. Now, We notice at the beginning of what the Apostle John tells us is that the Word, this Word, was not created. He's uncreated. He's not part of dependent reality, but independent divinity. That is, John doesn't say there was something really divine about Jesus. Like there may be something very divine about Gandhi or Nelson Mandela. Or Oprah. Right? People talk about the divine spark. The Bible doesn't say there was something divine about Jesus. But rather he was God, unity, and was with God, diversity. In the beginning was the word and all things were made through him. This means that he is not a God in process either. Things were made. So God is not in the process of developing with his creation realizing himself as though there are inherent and independent powers within the universe. You see, people have co-opted today the word nature. Nature, for many people today, means, well, it's a personification. Suddenly, nature is doing all kinds of things. It's willing things. It has emotions. It has thoughts and plans and designs that are being frustrated by the virus called humanity on the planet, and so on. But because God made all things through the Word, all things are actually revelational of Him. God's fingerprints are everywhere. Everywhere. 
And consequently, from him, all things derive their meaning. So for biblical faith, the creation is not divine. It's not emanation. It's not an extension of an ineffable, impersonal principle. It's the product of the personal word of God, who is not an aspect of that creation. Let me give you some striking contemporary examples. The oneism, by contrast of our time, if you deny John's perspective, the oneism, the idea that all is one, takes various forms. Some of the pagan spiritualities that this conference has been talking about. Sometimes hard-nosed scientism or a combination of both. They're all oneist. Some of the new atheists, for example, Dawkins, Harris, the late Christopher Hitchens, they lambaste religion as though they are uninvolved in religious matters, as though they are uninvolved in religious assumptions and religious questions. And this reveals their serious lack of critical reflection because in many respects their assumptions are archetypal forms of paganism. For them, you see, the universe or nature is unconditioned, non-dependent reality. This is their concept of the divine. Common to all these ideas is the continuity of being. All is ultimately one, a theme developed in evolutionism right through ancient Egypt, ancient Babylon, through the Greeks to the present. All reality has a kinship because it comes from an original oneness and it all evolved from this original primordial chaos. So everything is uh, an aspect of that one. And of course, in such a world, you can't really say A is better than B. You can only say it's different. You can't really make moral judgments or value judgments in such a world. And whilst they do carry on, of course, a differentiation between ultimate reality and the objects of our experience so that they can do science. At root, they believe everything has flowed and evolved from an ultimate impersonal oneness, nothingness, void, abstraction, whatever you want to say. Well, when you actually press them, they'll say, well, all laws break down at the quantum singularity, which means they have no idea what was going on at the beginning of the universe. They just don't want to go back and ask the hard question. In Hinduism and Buddhism, of course, there is the illusion of material reality distinguished from the divine, the nothingness, into which it will all be reabsorbed. But ultimately, everything flows from this undifferentiated being or non-being. And this is absolutely logical. Because without the Trinity revealed in the incarnate word Jesus Christ, ultimate reality is absolute unity. And creation must be emanation, God extending itself. And all the apparent distinctions in the world that we are familiar with and think about are either an illusion or they are just social construction. We map reality as we see fit. You see, the evolutionary atheist or materialist who wants to claim science for himself hasn't escaped pagan Assumptions. Listen to what Clauser says about popular materialism. Listen closely. The materialist who regards physical matter as self-existent may not be induced by that belief to pray to subatomic particles or sing hymns to force fields, nor will the modern rationalist who regards, say, mathematical laws as self-existent be inclined to develop a liturgy of quantitative adoration for their worship. 
Nevertheless, these beliefs ascribe to matter or mathematical laws respectively the same non-dependent status that a Jew, Christian, or Muslim ascribes to God or a Hindu attributes to Brahman. Rather than having no religion at all, such people simply have a very different idea of what is divine, an idea that makes worship seem inappropriate. That being said, for those who think all reality is just matter in motion, you know, the pop atheism, the God delusion, letter to a Christian nation, all sounds very rational. While the religious character of their belief is often readily confessed. For example, the scientist and popular science writer Chet Ramo, Stephen, Stephen J. Gold endorsed him as, and I quote, a wise religious humanist showing how to heal the false and unnecessary rifts in our intellectual culture by bridging the gap of scientific knowledge and religion. This is what Chet Ramo writes. Listen to this. The God of spiraling powers resides in nature beyond all metaphors, beyond all scriptures, beyond all final theories. It is the ground and source of our sense of wonderment, of power, of powerlessness, of light, of dark, of meaning, and of bafflement. It is the God whose history began with the first human who experienced awe, contingency, fear. There encounter, gape, jawed, and silent, the God of birds and birth defects, trees and cancer, quarks and galaxies, earthquakes and supernovas, awesome, edifying, dreadful and good, more beautiful and more terrible than is strictly necessary. Let it strike you dumb with worship and fear, beyond words, beyond logic. What is it? It is everything that is. Oh, that's paganism. Right in the heart of the writings of hard-nosed scientists. And this is inevitable where nature is personified and worshipped as everything that is. But notice actually that it's man himself who is truly the God worshipped in oneism since this God's history began when man became self-conscious. When he started to experience the world and describe it. Carl Sagan said, stated of his religious faith this way, he says, the cosmos is all there is, or was, or ever shall be. It's like an Anglican collect for a humanist. These are religious confessions that posit this replacement God. Commenting on the philosophy of Huxley, Michael Poole writes, Huxley vested dame nature, as he called her, with attributes hitherto ascribed to God, a tactic eagerly copied by others since. The logical oddity of crediting nature, every physical thing there is, with planning and creating every physical thing there is, passed unnoticed. Dame nature, like some ancient fertility goddess, had taken up residence, had taken up residence her maternal arms encompassing Victorian scientific naturalism. So today's paganism really is quite a logical outgrowth of the focus upon inherent power within nature. There's a great difference, says John Lennox of Oxford University, between God and the gods, and between a God who is the creator and a God who is the universe. As, Clerk, as James Clerk Maxwell well knew when he inscribed over the door of the famous Cavendish Physics Laboratory at Cambridge the words... 
Great are the works of the Lord. They are pondered by all who delight in them. On the plane here, I was doing some light reading. Thomas Nagel's book, Mind and Cosmos. And I just had to squeeze this bit in because I thought, interesting. An atheist. He seeks to find a middle way, he says, between what he considers the highly implausible reductionistic materialism of the age and theism. He recognizes the absurdity of purely physical accounts of mind and pure consciousness, which provide no basis to trust reason. I mean, after all, as Darwin asked, if our minds, our brains evolved from lower primates, well, what gives us any confidence that we can trust the deliverances of our minds? He says, would you trust anything in a monkey's mind? Darwin asked that. He recognizes, then Nagel recognizes, that you can't really trust our thought processes, our rationality in a universe without something beyond the material. But he doesn't want the God of Scripture. He wants mind in the universe as an aspect of nature. But the God of Scripture, he's not tolerable. He acknowledges that that's an ungrounded assumption. He says he just doesn't like it. He just doesn't like God and design. He says it's ungrounded. He's honest enough to admit that. What he prefers instead is what he calls neutral monism. That keeps all explanation inside nature. A leading atheistic philosopher, Thomas Nagel. You know, the evolutionary community in Britain was totally panicked when Nagel started talking about this. Heresy! One of our own bishops needs to be fired, excommunicated, burned at the stake. He's questioned the evolutionary paradigm and that everything can't be explained in terms of physics and chemistry. A God that left the universe to itself, he says, well, that's acceptable. Interesting, isn't it? A God who never spoke or intervenes or does anything. A God who just kicks the ball and everything is explicable in terms of everything in nature. Fine, but not the God of the Bible. He says this. Would an alternative secular conception be possible that acknowledged mind and all that it implies, not as the expression of divine intention, but as a fundamental principle of nature, along with physical law? And he acknowledges at the end of his book that this is just imaginative project that's probably wrong. I thought, well, what was the point of reading that? <laughs> well, that's philosophy. I did warn you about Voltaire's definition. These modern thinkers then, far from being religiously neutral, are committed to the pagan concept of the divine. Nature being self-explanatory, a continuity of being. Nature given the divine attributes. Letting, getting God in by the back door without acknowledging him. You see, only that which is personal has a will. Do you know anything inanimate? that has a will and a mind and a purpose. That's an attribute of personality. And let's just close by considering what it means to be a person. You see, unlike all conceptions of God, John's prologue reveals that God is personal, truly personal, relational. He's the incarnate word. That is, he became flesh. He's the only begotten of the Father. Now, why is this so important? Why is personality, you might say, I don't get this Christianity thing. Why does it have to be this personal God? 
Well, our being is an integrated whole. None of our personal qualities of intellect, emotion, and will stand alone where there are no relationships. Let me give you an example. What is mind if you've got nothing to think about? Well, nobody to think about. Or anything outside of yourself to think about. What is emotion if there's nothing to feel? These personal characteristics you see in us are actualized as we grow and learn and relate to the world and the persons all around us. My friend and former colleague L.T.J. Chandran, a scholar, delightful Indian gentleman, has pointed out in a paragraph packed with utter profundity the importance of this. Now, you're already probably feeling a bit tired. So just make a little bit more room here and listen to this. This is critically important. He says this, and I'll explain it in English afterwards. In God, he says, qualities of personality can be actualized only if there is an actual eternal relationship in him prior to, outside of, and without reference to creation. Only in that way could God be a personal being without dependence on his creation. When Moses asked God for his name, the answer he got was least expected. I am. This amazing mystery of the name, identity of God, solves a problem that we may not always be aware of. God is his own frame of reference. God, therefore, has to be self-referencing. This would be an absurd proposition, but for the fact that in the being of God, there is a plurality of infinite persons, and each can define himself with reference to the other. God can be truly said to be self-existent only because he is all-personal, all-relational being. Jesus introduces the first and second persons of the Godhead in the familial terms of father and son. It is not an accident that the father derives his fatherhood only because of the son and vice versa. You see, we define ourselves. We say, if you think, what is the self? You say, well, I'm not so-and-so. I'm not the chair I'm sat on. I'm not the floor. I'm not the ceiling. I'm me. I'm a self. So we reference ourselves in relationship to all those things around us. Well, in a bare unity, if God is not personal, if God is not Trinity, how can God be self-referencing? He'd be defining himself in terms of his creation. He would need creation to be actualized, to be God. In other words, God is the only one who can jump on his own shadow. You see, God is self-referencing. By the infinite personal reciprocity within the Trinity, the Father loves the Son through the person of the Holy Spirit who binds them together and provides space for each person to be himself. In Exodus chapter 3, you see, Moses asks God, what am I to say is your name when I go to Israel? And they say, well, who's sending me? God says to Moses, I am who I am. Am. Two verses later, God uses a name, Yahweh, which is a form of I am. We translate it in the English, the Lord. It means I will be who I will be. You see, names define and limit things, don't they? When you name something, you limit it. You define it. Man named everything in creation. But he didn't name God. He defined it. He identified it. He classified it. 
but he didn't name God. That is to say, God is beyond human delimitation. He is independent existence. He cannot be contained. He's the source of all definition and is alone able to define himself. And this is why, friends, it is an implicit blasphemy to be involved in attempts to prove God on man's terms, and I think that's what Tony meant today. You cannot prove by something other than God and his self-authenticating word, the existence of God, since he is the principle of definition and the source of all explanation, the premise of all thought, the presupposition of all proof. In other words, to put it more plainly, there is nothing more ultimate than God in reference to which he can be proved. You say, if you say to me, I say to you, look, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. You need to accept the gospel. You say, how do you know Jesus is the Son of God? I say, I give you a reason. Because of A. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, because of B. Well, how do you know that's true? Because of C. How do you know that's right? Well, because of D. Uh, you have to get back to the point where you say, as you say to your children, because I said that. Well, only God says, because I said so. Because he alone is self-referencing. And Jesus does not hesitate to identify himself, to self-identify as I will be who I will be. In John chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus says, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. And the Jews knew the meaning and implications of that, so they picked up stones to kill him. They knew that was a claim to being God. And this is why modern man's attempt to manipulate language and turn God's definitions, being the source of all definition, who cannot be defined by us, he reveals himself. When he differentiates and names, the Bible says, every family in heaven and earth, and he creates the male and female, and he institutes marriage, To turn that on its head is blasphemy. The modern state is blasphemous to the core. In Canada today, we are dealing, as as I know you are in California, with the language of gender fluidity. There was an incident in the Toronto Star just a week ago where a man who was uh, naked and aroused was in the women's changing room, self-identifying as a woman. And they could not remove him. This was in the Toronto Star. You see that gender fluidity, which asks this question, how do you self-identify? God alone self-identifies. You see, that is a claim to being God. We are defined by God. He is the source of all definition. When we claim to self-identify, it is actually a claim to Godhood. Any effort, likewise, to redefine the being of God, to reimagine him, to conform to human preferences as an unknowable God, or the God of uh, human philosophy, or the mother God of feminism, any effort to redefine him is, by the biblical definition, blasphemous. It's an expression of the desire to be as God. And this is explicitly manifest in the effort to rename and redefine all things as though we were the source of definition. And yet without God, the world is incapable of being defined. Everything just becomes social construction. So it's the LGBTQ22SQA, whatever it is. You can 
redefine. Everything is social construction. Man defines all things. And the same insight then about God and his plurality can be applied to other areas very quickly. We say God's transcendent. We say we're twoists. Or those of us who are Christians do. How can he be so if he is, in terms of, he can only be so if he is transcendent, though, in terms of himself. Otherwise, he'd need need creation to be transcendent, wouldn't he? Is God only transcendent because he created the universe? Or is he other in himself? You see, if God were not Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and this is the proof of Christianity... All his attributes would be actualized. They'd have to develop and grow as he discovered himself and his potentiality in the world. Like I discover my paternal capacity for love when I have children. I'm not born a father. Because I'm not self-defining and self-referential. I discover paternal love, the capacity for it. But before creation, what was God distinct from? He's also imminent in creation, but how can he hold all things together in creation and yet transcend it? It's because of the Trinity. The Father is distinct from the Son, who is distinct from the person of the Holy Spirit, and yet they are one. Unity in diversity. All other concepts of God collapse into pantheism. I wish I could develop that more for you tonight. Let's take another example, God's moral character. We say God is love. How can God be loving before he created you and me and the world? Is he only love because of the world? And then he's defined by it, and then he's not transcendent, and then we're not twoists. No, he is infinite, eternal love. These relational qualities, the summation of God's character, he is love within himself. John tells us, in John 17, 24, the Father loved the Son before, Jesus tells us, but the Father loves the Son before the creation of the world through the infinite personal medium of the Holy Spirit. The same is true of knowledge. How can God know anything before he's created anything? This is why all other concepts of God end in pantheism and in the creation is emanation. Where God is unknowable, blank, impersonal, nothingness. Think about it. If you're in a universe where there's nothing to know, what can you know? If there's nothing other than yourself, what knowledge do you have? For there to be knowledge, there must be a subject that knows and an object that's known. So I've gotten to know Peter and Rebecca. I'm the subject, they're the object. They're also in a subject-object relationship with me. And we live in a personal universe so we can communicate. Subject-object is required for knowledge. So the God of Islam who is a singularity, cannot know anything, cannot will anything, cannot love anything. It's unknowable, remote. But the Father knows the Son through the person of the Holy Spirit. The Son knows the Father. This same relational structure is through every aspect of our world. You see, the triune God is the only possible starting point for knowledge in any area of life. If you think 
You can believe in any other conception of the world. You end in total absurdity trying to jump on your own shadow. You need God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And this should draw us out in worship. It's critical then to realize that John's prologue reveals this relational, personal God who is truly transcendent and truly imminent because he is triune. And this is what Thaddeus was helpfully hinting at this morning in his session with us. He is eternally begotten of the Father. And the Father is the Father because of the Son. And the Son is the Son because of the Father. Through the person of the Holy Spirit. Now if we do not accept this word made flesh. This is the marvel. This word, the creator, who is uncreated. The Logos became a human being. and Lived among us. And they said... We saw his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Because of our moral rebellion against God, men and women have sought instead to establish their own word. They say, well, we're going to reject the word, but if you reject the word, you can't live with no word. So you're going to have another word, a counterfeit word. Whose word is it going to be? Your philosophy teacher? Your dad's? Oprah's? Jerry Springer's word? There will be another word that will start to try and define you. It will be a false word, but it will try and define you. Jesus Christ, you see, when he's rejected, men try and establish their own word. John John tells us the world did not know him, even though it was made through him, and his own people did not receive him. But those who did receive him, he gave the right, better than all the human rights on offer. He gave the right to be called children of God. Now there's a right worth having. The right to be called children of God, to be his children, to be in personal relationship with him. But if we reject the word... Man's ideas, his imagination speaks the new word, and then he tries to incarnate that word in the world, you see? If you don't have the word, who is incarnate as God the Son, man takes his word and his idea, and he tries to incarnate that. It's called social construction. He tries to impose his idea on reality, to speak the authoritative word to you. And people do this, and when they do this, they believe they have a source of meaning that frees themselves from God. And they will choose any meaning rather than God's meaning and any word rather than his word. They think it frees them to impose their own meaning as God's on the world, but since it is a lie, it doesn't free them. It makes us slaves to sin and death and misery. It's not a liberating word. Christ says, I have come that you might have life and life in all its fullness. I have come. He's the light that leads to life. And I've come that you might have life and life in all its fullness. In him was life. Apart from him is death and darkness. If he is light and life, 
You move away from the light and the life, you are left only with death and darkness. Friends, the biblical doctrine of hell is the final separation of those who despise God from the logos, from the word, and is therefore the negation of all meaning, communication, and community. You see, if there's no communication, you can't have community, can you? Because there is then no shared meaning. Everything is ultimately meaningless. And this is the logical conclusion of Buddhism, which has a concept of non-being, impersonal non-being as the destiny of all things. But there is no community, no personality. So many people today are living in hell's suburbs with their philosophies of meaninglessness and the destruction of a transcendent referent in their oneest world that is without true community because it's centered on the self, without hope and without God in the world. And we have an increasingly individualistic, atomistic, self-centered society, increasingly isolated in a digital age of virtual friends and virtual reality and virtual community. Where I can invent my own identity. Friends, in Jesus Christ, who is the exegesis of God, he shows us what he's like. He comes to establish his new covenant community where fellowship, communication, and the meaning of all things is in and through the word of light and life. And in Jesus Christ, our lost souls find their true home. There is deliverance from the prison of oneism where I have to be my own God. That is destroyed And we are personally enfolded, not in, but by the divine community. You are enfolded by the divine community. If you receive him, you have the right to be called a child of God. And he will say to you, welcome to my family, my son, my daughter, whom I love. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.